We're going to read from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the the brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Thank you very much. This is the word of the Lord. We are starting a new series today on the life of Elijah. It's kind of interesting. I started this series um, actually around Mother's Day. If you remember, we were in the series of Seven Deadly Sins, and I don't want to continue that series on Mother's Day, so I was looking for something else, and the Lord was bringing me to First Kings, but halfway through it, it was basically uh, not yet. Not yet. It's going to be later. And he directed me more towards Enoch, Enoch walking with God. Um, in order to, so today we're going to be going over Elijah. We are starting this new series on Elijah. Elijah is an interesting figure from the Old Testament. Kind of comes out of nowhere. We know where he comes from, Tishbite. And he's a, he's a Tishbite from um, Tishbe. Thank you, Becca. Tishbe. Um, there's two Tishbes, actually. Uh, one's more mountain region, one is, um, one is more plains. And really, we think that he came from the more mountainous region because he's like a mountain man. He is a wild character. He went around dressed in, uh, dressed in clothing made out of hair. So uh, a lot of people would wear these, this clothing in order to show their mourning and sadness. He just, he just rocked it, you know, Monday through Friday. He wore a girdle, um, you know, which is interesting. That's something we don't see. And he was this uh, wild man, but he had such an impact in the history of Israel to where the Book of Kings basically stops for his ministry. In order to understand Elijah, we should understand the world in which he lived. This Israel, this Israel that he is in is not the blossoming tribe taking possession of the land like in Judges. Nor is it the establishing kingdom in First and Second Samuel. It's not even the established kingdom like in the time of Solomon. By the time we get to chapter 17, it has been 58 years since the kingdom has been divided. If you remember, Jesus Christ said, no house divided against itself can stand, right? God has now divided Israel because they will not stand because of their idol worship. Solomon, the wisest of all kings, most wealthy of all kings, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God split the kingdom because of him and his son Rehoboam's sin. You now have the northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Ephraim, and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah has many righteous kings. The kingdom of the way we find out whether or not a king is righteous in Judah is it tells us right off the bat if they walked in the ways of their father David or if they walked in the ways of an evil ancestor. We talked about that last week. We talked about leaving a godly legacy and and how that worked. Now, when it comes to the northern kingdom of Israel, it's even easier than this 
If it says that they are a king, they are wicked. If it says, um, it's like that's that's like it's like that old saying. You know how I knew my ex was lying? Their lips were moving. You know, if a king of Israel is wicked, well, if he's a king of Israel, he is wicked. I wish I had known that before I started reading the books of First and Second Kings, because I was holding hope out the whole time I had read it. The first time when I was like in high school, I was like, maybe this one will be different. Maybe this one will be different. It's kind of a sad, you know, kind of a thing where we go to the same old wells thinking something's going to change. But with the, in the books of First and Second Kings, these kings of the northern kingdom, all are wicked. Um, in fact, the first couple kings, they become king after they kill the previous king. It's like a Klingon starship, those of you who are Trekkies. That's how you become the captain of Klingon starship. You challenge the other guy to death, to a, to a fight, and you kill him, you become king. That is how the first couple kings of Israel, of the northern kingdom, became king. You have Jeroboam, who leads the secession and the split in Israel, which was judgment from God. He is used by God, even though he himself is wicked. So he's used by God because Rehoboam, so this is a little confusing, in fact I got confused this morning when we were going over it, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon and God splits the kingdom under him, but it's Jeroboam who is the new king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Him and his son reign there until him and his entire family are destroyed by another king named Basha. Basha has given the word of the Lord to destroy all of Rehoboam and his family and everything. And Basha, him and his family, do exactly what Jeroboam had done. Isn't that crazy? It's like, you were there to displace him because of the wicked things he did. You start living the same way, and what did you expect? It's kind of like Israel, right? They They are brought into Canaan as judgment from God on the Canaanites. God waited until their sins were complete. And he tells them to go into the land, take possession of it, drive them out. And he tells them because of the wicked things they had done. But if you start living the same way, I will do the same thing to you. And I'll use another nation. And unfortunately, almost right away, the people of Israel are like, so, so we're in charge of the land, right? We can do what we want. No, 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 no. You have to follow the Lord your God. You're, that's the only reason why you're even in the land. So so many of these northern kings, they they heard the word of the Lord to displace the other person, or because of their own wickedness, they do so. And and this happens time after time. And then you get to Omri. Omri overthrows another guy named Ziri. He has a long dynasty in secular terms. He's also a very prosperous king. He's more prosperous than any of the other northern kingdom of Israel kings. To the point where his enemies don't call it the land of Israel, they call it the land of Omri. Which is a bit of blasphemy in and of itself. Omri has a longer dynasty than the others. Once again, to the point where his enemies call it the land of Omri. Omri has a son who is king after him named Ahab. And Ahab did not hunt a white whale. He hunted a wild prophet. These are wicked times. It says that Ahab does more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the other kings combined. It says that the sins of Omri seemed like a very small thing to him. And here's the thing about wickedness. Wickedness doesn't, it's not addition, it's multiplication. What is done in one generation is multiplied in the next. That is why every generation seems when they get to be about 20, they're like, in my day, we would have never talked to our parents like that. Well, in your day, you did. 
And now your kids are much worse because they saw the example you followed. We're always surprised in America, the next generation comes up more wicked than the last because the previous generation was warned about its wickedness and it didn't care. Generation X with its nihilism and indifference thought it was cool and continued in it. And then the millennial generation arises who doesn't want to do anything. And of course I'm speaking in general terms as the Bible would about the generations in Israel. Generation comes up, the millennial generation, who wants to be seen as smart, but actually does not want to do the work of being smart, who doesn't want to do anything, but they also want to feel righteous. Now, the next generation, Generation Z, is that times that. And every generation, we're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Well, maybe if in a generation we sowed righteousness, the next generation we would reap blessing. But in one generation we sow to sin, in this nation, in all nations, and the next generation we reap we reap more wickedness. In the most evil of times, however, God sends his prophets. Hard times produce strong people, but wicked times produce bold prophets. Two of the most powerful, influential, and bold prophets to have ever lived do not rise up in the southern kingdom of Judah, who had an occasional righteous king, but in the northern kingdom of Israel that only had wicked kings the most wicked of times, God sends his most powerful prophets. Wicked times may be wicked, but that does not mean that God's church is overthrown or that God's plans are frustrated. It doesn't mean that God has forsaken us. Wicked times produce powerful servants of God, and you might just be one of them. Elijah had a very impressive resume. You look at his life as a whole, because this is my first sermon on Elijah. I'm also looking at his life as a whole. I will be going over chapter 18, the most well-known story of Elijah's life. The uh, fire at Mount Carmel, which sounds delicious, but if you want to hear me preach on that, just go back to the Wayback Machine on our website, and it's titled, Elijah Setting Fire to the Rain. We won't be going over that, but Elijah had this impressive resume. Uh, um, John the Baptist, Jesus said that he was the greatest born of woman, and Jesus doesn't lie. And he also said that he operated in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In our scripture today, he prays, and God withhold rain for three and a half years. He resurrects the dead, enters heaven without dying, one of two people in all of the scripture that that is said of. He can call fire down from heaven multiple times. He parts the Jordan and made several prophecies that came true, and he did not make one prophecy that did not come true which is the sign of a true prophet. One wrong prophecy, disregard everything. Because true prophets from God, if they hear from God, God doesn't lie. Amen. Man lies. Man lies all the time. But out of all the impressive deeds, the most significant line of his resume we find in the very first verse of his introduction. Now Elijah, the Tishabite, the Tishabi in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Before whom I stand. Elijah stood before God. It's the most impressive line. It's the most significant line of his entire resume. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. He stood before the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, not every patriarch, leader, 
prophet stands in the presence of God. It's actually quite unique. This is, in fact, the most significant thing that can be said of any individual. Here's a very short list of those who stood before in the presence of God. One, Adam, our first father. Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the morning. Of course, we know he stood in the presence of God when God told him of the curse that he incurred on all of humanity. Second person, Moses. In Exodus 33, saw, saw back, he saw the back of the Lord when he begged to see the Lord's glory. Even though God told him he'd die if he did, he didn't care. He wanted to see God's glory. And his face shone, literally shined bright where they had to put a veil over his face. Three, Isaiah. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. That is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6. It's such a powerful moment. He's in the presence of God, and he figures, I'm dead. He says, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Other translation says, I am undone. What it literally means is to come apart at the seams. It's like taking one of those loose threads on the sweater you know you shouldn't pull, you should just clip with the scissors, but you do anyway. And now you've ruined the sweater. He's like, I am coming undone. That is how powerful to be in the presence of God was for him. Elijah says, I stand in the presence of God. Next person, the last person I'm going to talk about who stands in the presence of God, actually second to last, is Gabriel the angel. When he appears to Zechariah, he has the same boast as Elijah. I stand in the presence of God. That is something that really kind of should give us pause in the story. Because he's an angel of God. What amazing things must an angel of God experience in his day? That morning he could have been standing on the surface of Jupiter. He could have been witnessing great battles across the world. He could be doing so many things. He could say so many things about his history. Oh, I visited this person, this person. He stands, he's in front of Zechariah. He tells him, I stand in the presence of God. Because nothing more needs to be said. Nothing more needs to be said. I stand in the presence of God. But do you know who also stands in the presence of God? See, if you are here today, you are truly the son and daughter of the living God. He has put his spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. That's right. You. You stand in the presence of God. So, if you have the spirit of God in you, you stand before the presence of God, how then should you live? How should it affect your life? Because it should. You can't have an encounter where somebody is as powerful as God and remain unchanged. So many people try to make that claim. That they get saved, but it has no impact on their life. Or we even tell people, like, oh, you won't see a change right away because we just want people in the club. <laughs> you know, if I, if I was late today, and I look exactly like I do now, and uh, Wayne is like, where were you? And I'm like, I got hit by a Mack truck. Hit me square on. You know, he'd say, you're a liar. And my feelings would be hurt, but he'd be right. Yes. Because I couldn't have an encounter with something as powerful as a Mack truck and remain unchanged. Amen. Yeah, we tell people you can have an you can have an encounter with the living God. He can put His Spirit in you, and you can remain unchanged. We do such a disservice. Those who stand in the presence of God, who make the presence of God a routine in their life, here are three things from the life of Elijah from just the first seven verses that would that apply to you. If you stand before God. One, you won't kneel before men. Amen. Two, 
You trust that God will provide. And three, you become obedient, especially when it doesn't make sense. If you stand before God, you won't kneel before men. Elijah is a wild man, as you can imagine, with wild hair. Small guy, probably, if what we know from people who came from Tishabite is true. And here's the king, Ahab. And on the surface, secular-wise, Ahab is a prosperous king. He's a popular king. Elijah, he's not going to be very popular for very long. If he is popular, he's not. He stands in front of the king who could order to have him killed, but so many other kings had so many other prophets killed. But before we go any further, let's recognize the obvious about Elijah. He was a man of prayer. That is what it means to stand before God, to call out to him and to know that he hears you. We, of course, we know we have different levels of prayer, right? We have the prayer before our meal, but then we have a prayer. We have our prayer time, the true prayer time where we connect where everything and nothing changes. Where we're in the presence of God. That is the kind of prayer I'm talking about today. Elijah was such a man. James 5, 17 and 18. Blow the lid off of who Elijah was. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it may not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave, gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is, um, prayer is talking with God. But it's more than that. It's our goal, it's our obsession to know Him. It is not simply a variation of sitting on Santa's lap asking for things. Prayer becomes a time where I am being further made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I wrote on here, I kind of described what I want my prayer life to be, what I believe my prayer life to be, and I pray that your prayer life would be the same. I said on here, when I pray, I am a different person. There's a part of me that my wife doesn't know. There's a part of me that my mother doesn't know. There's a part of me that nobody on earth knows, but my Father in heaven knows. Prayer makes me a different person. James 5, 17 and 18 says as much. I, um, Elijah had a nature same as ours, but he prayed fervently, and God answered. Pastor Leonard Ravenhill, credible pastor, I, I would suggest checking out his sermons online. A big part of this is inspired from a sermon I heard him preach one time. But he said this, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is plain. The people who are not praying are strained. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few cleaners. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing year, we fail everywhere. The most significant question of any person, despite any title they have, is what is your prayer life? Because no person is greater than their prayer life. I don't care if they, if they lead millions or just a handful of people. No person is greater than their prayer life. A lot of people, they want to be up on stage. Few people want to be here 
before the service, agonizing over the people in Kasuke County, Palo Alto County, Iowa, United States, America, and around the world. No person is greater than their prayer life. The one thing we should acknowledge about Elijah above all is that he was a man of prayer. I was listening to Pastor Ravenhill's message on Elijah, and he brought up something I never considered when I read this story. I don't know if you have. Let me tell you. It never says that God told Elijah that it would not rain. It says that Elijah told the king it would not rain. And James said that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. Not that he heard that it would not rain. It's a very interesting thing. You know why? Because Elijah knew the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, God tells him that they should serve other gods, he would shut up the heavens. Pastor Ravenhill, commenting on this, says, Elijah must have thought, you know, everybody in life, they don't keep their word, but if there's one person who should keep their word, it's the Lord. Amen. If there's one person who should keep their word, it is the Lord. And he prayed fervently that it would not rain, even though he himself would be in the same drought because he was more concerned of the spiritual health of Israel than he was concerned about their physical health. It's better to go to heaven thin than to hell fat. Elijah doesn't hear from God that a drought is coming because he and all of Israel had already heard about the consequences of turning towards other gods. Because you don't need to be, you don't need a new word to be obedient to an old one. In our circles, that is charismatic Pentecostal circles, I've heard before that we have lead poisoning. We don't want to do anything without being led by the Spirit. I mean, should, I, should I go to the church work day? I don't feel led to it. Should I come to church on Sunday morning? I don't feel led to it. I feel more led to my pillow. We say all these things, and some, you know, something, honestly, we should want to be led by the Spirit, but do you realize that following the Word of God is being led by the Spirit because the Holy Spirit will it's not secondary to hearing a fresh word from God today. It is primary. It is how we judge all other things. You aren't led by the Spirit. If you, are op- if you are not following the Word of God, you are in fact opposition to the Spirit. You are not walking by the Spirit. Some people won't share their faith and let them feel the Spirit led is leading them to do so. But I have bad news. The Great Commission is not a suggestion. And it wasn't when we feel like it. It is not when we feel the prompting. It's to go into all the world and preach the gospel of all men. Now the Holy Spirit helps us in that, because we can't do that on our own. Who has believed our message? The Holy Spirit makes this possible, but the obedience is on us to go. Amen. The Great Commission isn't a suggestion. It's not a wait until you feel like it kind of command. You know, some people are waiting for God to write on the wall to forgive their parents. Well, I've got a great suggestion for anybody who's waiting for this. So, Log into Facebook, log into Bible Gateway, and find all the verses that talk about forgiveness and about honoring your parents. Copy, now paste it, and post. Now you'll have the writing on your wall, the Word of God that says you should forgive your parents. Congratulations. You don't have to wait any longer. There are so many things that we know we should be doing that we're not doing that we can try to spiritualize our way out of it. Elijah knew the word of God, and he held God to his word. Elijah is about to become very unpopular. Ahab is popular. Israel, in a way, is flourishing under his rule. 
However, inside it is rotting. Think of America. We have had amazing times of ease. You would not be a popular person if you started to pray for a drought because of the death of so many unborn. You are not going to be popular if you started praying God's justice on entire denominations who have turned to follow other gods. Why would Elijah do such a thing? He lives in Israel. A drought would hurt him just as bad as anybody else. Because Elijah's first priority is not human comfort, it is the glory of God. Amen. It's the spiritual salvation of Israel. He knows that God's justice won't sleep forever. In fact, that's something that Thomas Jefferson said. He said that the one thing that keeps him up at night is that God is just and his justice will not sleep forever. As this week, we are going to celebrate Fourth of July this next Sunday. You know what's cool? On Fourth of July, we're going to have a missionary in here from Ethiopia. It's kind of cool because I think America should be a blessing to other nations, should send our, send our ministers out to be a blessing to other nations. And that is something I think is important to do. We look here in America and we see the condition of the human heart. Are we praying? Are we agonizing over this? Are we so confused? consumed with the politics and the issues of this world that's making us numb to these things. Can you imagine can you imagine some of those mega churches going up to the President of the United States, their pastor, and telling them, it will not rain for three and a half years here in America until I give the word. I've prayed to God and he is judged. They wouldn't last very long, especially if a drought happened. You'd have all these people, all, a lot of other Christians who would denounce it and we blame it, of course, on global warming, not on actual consequences of our sin. Elijah and Elisha are two prophets that are brought up to try to call the people to repentance. We have the benefit of hindsight. Hindsight tells us it doesn't happen. Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom do go into the exile. They get to a point of no return. So we ask ourselves, well then why, why even bother? And it reminds me of this quote, quote from C.H. Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion, and let us and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. We relieve the results with God, but we have a matter of obedience for ourselves. And so many of us were so afraid of the consequences, we won't tell people the hope that we profess. Actor, magician, atheist, uh, uh, Penn Gillette was doing a show, and a believer came up to him afterwards, told me he enjoyed his magic show, and he gave him a Bible, and he just told him, I'm praying for you. On his podcast the next day, Penn Gillette goes on there, and he says, you know, this didn't, didn't really, it just touched him so deeply that somebody would do this, and he said, I don't... He's like, I, I welcome people to proselytize, you know, to convince me of their arguments. Because he's like, if you believe I'm going to hell, how much would you hate me not to say anything? If I thought, if I saw a car speeding down the speeding down the highway, doesn't see you, you're in the middle of the street, I'm screaming at you, at some point in time, I'm tackling you out of the way. But for social reasons, we won't tell somebody of the goodness of Jesus Christ who saves sinners. How much do you have to hate somebody in order for that to be the case? Unfortunately, in order to be obedient, that takes courage. Confronting kings and tyrants. 
If you'd stand before God, you won't kneel before men. And this drives kings and tyrants crazy. There's a, co- there's a cost to obedience to not kneeling before men. It's how they know who to throw into the fiery furnace, the people who are still standing. You know, Jezebel, Ahab, he sins more than all the other kings. He marries Jezebel. There's consequences to this. He, he officially instit- institutes Baal worship as a, as a um, religion of the kingdom. And Jezebel, his wife, kills every person of God she can get her hands on. Elijah stands face to face, eye to eye with the king, and tells them that it won't rain until he gives the word. When Ahab sees, in chapter 18, when Ahab sees Elijah, he calls him the troubler of Israel. Once again, that is back in my other sermon um, on, on the life of Elijah, Elijah setting fire to the rain. When Ahab finally sees Elijah during the end of the drought, he doesn't know at the end, he calls him the troubler of Israel. You know what Elijah tells him? I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. Because it's true. This was, a, this was Ahab's fault. He is the leader. And that's the burden of leadership, though. Anybody who's thinking about being a leader, that's your burden of leadership. What happens under your, under your command is your fault. That is why when things go well, you can, you, can, you can be happy with a leader. We think of this as military leaders like Patton and stuff. And then when things go awry, that is also blamed on the uh, general, and so to speak. If you are a leader, what happens under your command is your responsibility. Ahab, it is his fault. And Elijah, he, he puts it right back in his face. He calls him the troubler of Israel. You know, if I were to base on what is happening um, there in chapter 18, according to how many pastors and prophets today would respond, and what they would say to presidents, kings, and governors, I would think it would go something like this. Um, I'm sorry, King. Thank you for your time. You're right. In the past, God's remnant has been really, really bad to some people. But um, um, I just want to hurt my public witness by being legalistic. But if you could just stop that Baal worship, that would be great. And maybe God could send the rain. Where are the men and women of God who will say, you are the troubler of Israel. You are the troubler of America. The reason why America is in the place it is today is because we've turned our backs on God. We swim in an ocean of the blood of infants, and then we're like, God, why aren't you blessing America? When pastors who used to preach the word of God, who would preach against such evil, have preached the exact opposite and said, well, maybe there's different ways. Maybe there's different ways of accomplishing that goal. It's not your priority. Your priority is to preach against wickedness and to have a backbone. Because if you stand in the presence of God, you don't kneel before the before men. The problem is, a lot of people who say that they are people of God, leaders, pastors, whatever have you, they are more afraid of being canceled by Twitter than they are being afraid of canceled by God. If you stand before God, you trust that God will provide. Amen. In verse 2, we have the first record of God speaking directly to Elijah. It's instruction for Eliza, Eliza, uh, Elijah so he can survive what is coming. So God accepts Elijah's premise. God, Elijah prays that God would keep his word, and God is going to keep his word. And he provides for Elijah. Elijah doesn't pray for provision. 
which I find to be amazing, because if you stand in the presence of God, the provision of God is just, it's expected, one way or another. Amen. God's going to provide either strength, or he's going to provide sustenance, he's going to provide something, because he is Yahweh Jireh. Amen. Yes. Months ago, I did a series on the names of God. One name is Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. Because he's already provided a Savior, we know he provides. Elijah doesn't seem to have any worry in this department. In James and in Kings, it doesn't even say that Elijah even prays for God protection or provision. What God tells him, um, he presumes that God will provide for him. A person who walks with God calls him Yahweh Jireh and assumes that God will. The, the drought will be devastating. Elijah doesn't know how long it's going to last. No one knows how long it's going to last. What is about to happen is an extreme doubt for three and a half years. Were you excited about the rain yesterday and today? I was. Yes. My my yard was almost dead. It was like straw. It's like crackling underneath my feet. I know some of you are farmers and you're like, thank you, Lord, for the rain. Can you imagine now that drought lasting for three and a half years in America today with all our anger irrigation? It would be devastating. Here are some of the impacts, according to those who follow these things, um, of just mild droughts that we have today. Um, loss of livestock. Livestock need water to in order to live. Businesses that depend on farming, like companies, um, that make different things, different um, objects. So you look at blacksmiths, they lose their jobs. In our society, that would be things like John Deere and other companies like that, Snap-on. They would lose jobs. People who work in the timber industry may be affected when wildfires destroy their stands of timber. We see that like every year over in California, right? People will have to pay for more for food, and a severe impact will be lucky to find food, let alone pay for more for it. Other impacts that we see in droughts today with our limited droughts, anxiety or depression about economic loss caused by that drought. I would encourage you to look at the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Just horrific. Health problems related to low water flows and poor water quality. Health problems related to dust. Loss of human life. Threat to public safety from an increased number of forest and range fires. Reduced incomes. People may have to move from farms into cities. And we could go on and on and on. But what is about to happen to Israel is ten times worse than we've ever seen in America. And Elijah knows that God's going to provide for him. Or God will take him. He's fine either way. You know, we really have to forget expectation when it comes to the Lord will provide. The Lord provides, but he does always according to his will and not according to our will. I'm just guessing um, Elijah did not think he was going to be fed by ravens. I have to imagine if he wrote a list of all the ways God is going to provide for me, at the top of the list was not going to be disgusting carrion birds. That's right. Amen. So ravens are. They eat dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I was talking with Becca, and I like, I, I've said this before. I wonder exactly what that was like, being fed by ravens. In my mind, I like to think that like the ravens like went over to McDonald's and somehow had raven money. And, and bought like a, you know, a big bag and everything, and ripped it, the bag in their talents, and brought it over. Of course, that's a fantasy, not even close. So I like to also think maybe they, you know, they found a loaf of bread, 
They got it with their talons. They brought it over to him. They found a slab of meat, put it in their dirty, disgusting talons, and brought it over to Elijah. I, I, I really hope that they didn't feed him like they feed their young. That is less appetizing. Nobody wants to go to the ABC of Raven Cuisine. No, Elijah doesn't care. Elijah's satisfaction comes from the Lord. Elijah is not worried about what he will eat, what he will drink, because satisfaction was not found in food or by water, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. A man is unafraid to kneel before a God whom he trusts. Elijah, like Paul, knows what it's like to be in want and in plenty. At this point in Elijah's life, he knows what it's like to be in want. He comes from the wilderness. He comes from nothing. But he does end up, he does end up getting servants. He ends up leading the uh, school of the prophets. So he knows what it's like to be in plenty. He knows what it's like to be in want. But he knows this. If you have God, you have everything. If you don't have God, you have nothing. His satisfaction comes from his trust in the Lord. Like Paul, he knows what it's like to be content in any and every circumstance. He's learned the secret. He's content in both because, because he doesn't live by bread alone. The third thing that happens when you stand in the presence of God is you become obedient, especially when it doesn't make sense. It's easy to follow God when things make sense. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or we probably dumb it down to be nice to people. Great. God, I will be nice to people. That requires zero faith. But then Jesus says, love your enemies. What? What about what if what if they voted for like Biden or Trump? Do I still have to love them? I can never, I'll never forget this. This is when I was in my previous church and I was preaching, and I was um, it was 2016 election. Remember how contentious that was. And I, I, I was preaching, I said that you can't hate Trump, you can't hate um, Hillary Clinton. I almost forgot who was running next. And um, somebody in the con- I, I didn't even say it like that. It just simply said you have to love somebody from a different political point of view because God has called us to love. And I never forget this because somebody said loud enough to where I could hear, you mean I gotta love people who vote for Trump? And I almost stopped and said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> love your enemies, love your enemies. That requires faith. You know, um, going back to Leonard Ravenhill, he says, when the church finds a law they don't like, they call it legalism. Bless those who persecute you. Surely you don't mean the family member who's been trying to turn the rest against me all this time. That can include the people who are trying to take away my God-given rights in Washington and those who support them, like, you know, my enemies, those who are persecuting me. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus meant. To bless those who persecute you, because he, he blessed the people dragging nails into his very hands. Go to this cave and ravens will feed you. That is crazy, let's be honest. That is crazy. If you told me today, hey, Pastor Jason, I am going to fast for three and a half years. I'll, the only thing I'm going to eat is what the ravens give me. I'm going to be like, okay, let's, why don't you sit down for a bit here? Let's give you a glass of water and let's... You know, I'll use the calm tone and everything. He had such a confidence that God would provide. He did not doubt in the darkness what God showed him in the light. One game I used to play with teens when I was a youth pastor was this game where you blindfold you blindfold kids and you have them run an obstacle course, which is great when they don't want to listen to instructions and they trip everywhere. 
Um, but what you do is you have the, you have a partner with them, and uh, the partner is supposed to call out the things that they see. You know, walk to the left, walk to the right, jump, that kind of stuff. And the person has a couple options. They can listen to their partner and get through the obstacle course well and unharmed. They can distrust their partner and listen to only some of the things they say and not others and end up tripping or falling on things. Or they, or they can just disregard their partner and fall over everything, and which makes it a very fun game when they do that. But obviously it breaks the, it breaks the example that I'm trying to make that when God is telling us something, we trust Him because He can see more than we can. He sees better than we can. He sees in the dark. Darkness is His light to Him. We don't see in the dark. So we trust in Him when we don't understand. Well done is better than well said. I remember my pastor growing up. In his office, he had this sign, and it said, Well done is better than well said, because in the end, more gets said than done. I'm like, right? Yeah. A lot of us have a lot of good game. We talk about these things. I remember when I was growing up in youth camp, the big thing is that we were trained to be martyrs. And all these kids that I was growing up with saying, God, I will die with you. And then we got to college and they're like, but, I mean, you don't expect me not to live with my boyfriend and girlfriend, right? Oh, you do? Well, then I don't want anything to do with church. So you would you would have died, but you won't live for him? Well done is better than well said. He also had this, uh, it was like this round disc, and it was called a Tuit. And um, I was like, what is that? And um, he said, okay, yeah, he's like, so a lot of people will tell me they'll do this stuff at the church when they get around to it. So I give them this, and now they have a round to it. <laughs> I need to get that. That would be great. Even though we have, by the way, I don't really need it, because, man, you guys are awesome. Uh, awesome work day yesterday, where we got around to a lot of things. Um, once again, he said he had given that so they get around to it. It's one thing to hear the word of the Lord. It's another thing to actually do it. What should you be doing? What should you be doing? This is something to consider. So many of the people of Israel became prophets of Baal. You better believe in there there was Levites and former priests. They became priests of Baal. Everybody in Israel, they knew the law of God, and they followed the Baals. No wonder in America we find so many people who have a religious background turning to the things of this world. What should you be doing? We agonize over that question a lot, don't we? What does God want me to do in this season of my life? Maybe it's something specific, like Elijah in the cave. I don't know. I trust that if you are standing in the presence of God, you know. But I do know this. Elijah read from Deuteronomy that God would shut up the heavens if his people followed other gods. So that's what he prayed for. That's where he put his trust. What have you read in the scripture that you are not currently doing? Obedience in one area does not negate disobedience in another. Worship team, would you come up at this point? There is this book. It used to be anonymous. The author now is only known as Brother Lawrence. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. It's one of the most significant things you do as a believer. Is every day getting to the place of prayer where you are in the presence of God, where you are standing before God. The less you do, the less you are following God. Once again, that quote from Leonard Ravenhill, the people who are not praying are straying. You know, it makes you wonder how much prayer is going on in our churches. Where every year, it seems like more and more churches are less attendance, less attendance across the nation. 
Are the people praying or are they straying? Are they practicing the presence of God or are they just like the idea of God? Every day we need to practice the presence of God, to stand in the presence before God. It changes our perspective on so many things and we get changed the more we stand in the presence of God. We become more like God himself, more like Jesus Christ. Second, pray for the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in your life. That was the whole point of our whole series on the seven deadly sins. And so that we may live, we may produce the fruit of the Spirit. Not a check-off list, here's the things I need to do, but we pray, God, do such a work in me that the fruit of the Spirit is evident in my love, my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. I was at the funeral for my grandmother-in-law this last week. And uh, by the way, thank you very much, Faith Church, for sending flowers and a lot to the family. We really, really appreciate that. And one thing the uh, pastor who was doing the funeral brought up was from one of the books of C.S. Lewis, um, which is The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but basically it's a view of heaven and hell. It's a fantasy story, so it's not, it's not authoritative. But in heaven, there's this great procession for this great lady. There is angels going before her, dropping petals. There is just such a hullabaloo. And he's like, and, and, and the narrator is asking his guide, who is this great woman? And his guide tells him, you wouldn't know her. You wouldn't know her. Yeah, I forget his name, like Maggie Smith or something like that. Just a very common name. He's like, but she is known here. She is known here because on earth, she built treasures in heaven. She was a mother to every child she came across. To every man she met, she had such a, a way about her to where when they, when, when they were done talking, they loved their wives more. They loved the Lord more. So I'm at the funeral of, uh, of Joan Nelk, and I, I, brief, I, under my breath, said to myself, God, make me such a one. Make me such a one. That should be our prayer in our own life. God, do such a work in me, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control are so evident that they cannot be denied. So daily stand in the presence of God. Worship team, would you lead us today? After this-